There's an article on The Onion that's titled, No Way to Prevent This, says, only nation where this regularly happens. If you're not familiar, The Onion is a satirical newspaper, and this article is referring to mass shootings. And the title isn't the only ironic thing about this article. The Onion published it originally in 2014, and since then has republished it an additional 31 times, multiple times a year after its initial release, always after another mass shooting takes place in the United States. Most recently, they ran it on March 27th after the shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee. This is basically the same situation again, the same article being published again, and the same political fallout again. A lack of discourse and inability of lawmakers to come to a consensus. And this time we even saw Tennessee state representatives Justin Jones and Justin Pearson get literally expelled from their offices. So with no one being seemingly capable of talking about this issue in a mature or productive way, we've decided to take a page out of The Onion's book and republish one of our episodes from last year. This is Gun Control, Adjudicating the Arguments Around the Second Amendment. Welcome to this episode of Indubitably. I am Josh. And I'm Kelly. And today we're coming to you with something a little bit different. Today we're going to be doing what we have titled an adjudication episode. What that means is we're going to be taking a look at some of the most prevalent arguments for a controversial issue and evaluating those arguments themselves. Yeah, you know, the the goal in our show, as we highlighted it from our intro episode and thus far, has been to cover some of the most controversial debates in society. And oftentimes we're covering topics that the average listener might be less familiar with and presenting arguments that maybe y'all haven't heard before in order to help you develop an understanding of those debates. But there are some debates out there that we all know, and we are all familiar with the arguments because we hear them over and over. So on today's episode, instead of presenting a new controversy or new arguments, we will be analyzing or adjudicating, same thing, but sounds a lot fancier, indubitably, uh, we will be adjudicating the arguments that we commonly hear. The first topic we'll be looking at through this different lens is one that you're probably pretty familiar with, especially if you're an American, and that's the topic of gun control or the controversy around the Second Amendment as it pertains to the right to bear arms in the United States. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. In order to most effectively look at this topic, as usual, we're going to try to be organized with this subject. So first, we'll take a look at what, what does regulation look like when we're looking at guns and firearms? Secondly, how do we balance self-defense with minimizing gun deaths? And finally, as we often hear the phrase, a well-regulated militia. Yeah, and these things should seem pretty familiar to most of our listeners. And this is why we've decided, I think, to tackle this issue as our first adjudication episode. I don't think that we'll be 
providing many arguments that y'all haven't heard before in this episode, but hopefully we'll be able to analyze these arguments as a debate judge would and tell you which ones hold merit, which ones break down, and exactly why. One of the reasons that this topic in particular is so pertinent to this type of episode for us is because this is a topic that continues to be discussed and doesn't seem to really have a resolution. And part of the reason that it doesn't have a resolution is that sometimes the discourse around the topic isn't very good. And some of those flawed arguments can inhibit the progress of making a resolution happen on a topic as serious as this. Mm -hmm. But today, hopefully Kelly and I will be able to fix that for you all. (laughs) You can be the judges at the end of the episode. Okay. (laughs) So why don't we start with what does gun control look like when we say that we want to have regulation on firearms or potentially give the second amendment a closer examination? What do we mean by that in real legislative terms? Some of the proposed gun control measures that most people who don't fall on the extremes of this debate would support are things more of the nature of common sense gun control, such as background checks, bans on assault weapons, and bans on high-capacity magazines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely those things enter into the discourse and and have been proposed and adopted in various states. But since we said we're going to be presenting the arguments that we hear in the public discourse, we definitely also hear they want to come and take our guns away (laughs) on one side or... We don't want any regulation whatsoever on the other side. Kind of accusations that the left throws at the right and vice versa. This is a really common argument that we hear a lot of the people who have a very staunch belief that the right to bear arms is absolute, would say. But if you look at that argument, uh, it doesn't have the nuance of what's actually being proposed in a lot of cases. So this is the kind of argument that we would classify as a logical fallacy known as a straw man which means that it is purposely kind of facetious in order to be easily debunked by the people who are purporting that that's the facts of the issue on the ground right now. And this would be on the right side, Obama's coming to take all of our guns or Clinton is coming to take all of our guns. Has anybody accused Biden of coming to steal everybody's guns? I don't think anybody would expect him to effectively do it, even if he was accused of trying. (laughs) On the left, they like to do the same, put up this straw man for their opponents on the right of saying, oh my gosh, they're out there running around and they want to have rocket launchers and (laughs) grenade launchers and tanks, and they don't want any regulation whatsoever. And even in most cases, reasonable gun owners don't actually want to have like a Sherman tank. Mm. Typically speaking, they do support some sort of measures that are reasonable not necessarily being able to have a nuclear warhead. Mm. See, I don't have a gun, but I might be convinced to buy a tank. <laughs> would you? What would you? <laughs> what would you do with the tank? I don't know. Drive it. I mean, obviously, but look like a badass. But no one could see you because you're in the tank with my cat. No, they have that little hatch that you could you could come out the top of. That's not for the person driving it. I don't think. Oh crap! I'm gonna need a tank chauffeur. Okay. <laughs> um, but either either way, we digress. Either way, as opposed to having a conversation in the public discourse that looks at exactly what kind of regulation are we talking about here and what levels are reasonable and what levels are not, 
the predominant narrative does come in the version of these straw mans that tries to mischaracterize the other side and then take them down because that mischaracterization is so easy to debunk. Another logical fallacy that is often employed, and you might hear this a lot from people on the right who also have a similar affection for firearms, is that one small infringement upon their right to bear arms will lead to greater infringements down the road and more and more extreme policy that comes out and utterly obliterates their right to bear arms whatsoever. So this is a logical fallacy that is known as a slippery slope that has some sort of precipitous degradation or acceleration of things that people dislike and ultimately leads to a really disastrous outcome. Mm -hmm. And a slippery slope is if we take one action, even if that one action is reasonable, that will inevitably lead to another, which will inevitably lead to another. And the final product is something that we want to avoid. So the argument would be because we will reach this final product that we want to avoid, we should never take the first step. And this is certainly something that's employed um, by the NRA specifically in this debate to suggest that we need to avoid any regulation whatsoever because any regulation will lead to a complete dismantling of the Second Amendment. This fallacy is pretty interesting because it requires so many different things to happen in the chain of events to get to that point. I think of it a little bit like dominoes, where if you you know take out the second domino or whatever, you're not really going to be able to get to the end of their conclusion. But ultimately, you know, not being able to buy an unlimited supply of ammo for a high capacity weapon means that we're never ever going to be able to go hunting again. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't bear out when you look at it logically. Mm-hmm. And and for this to be a legitimate slippery slope and therefore a logical fallacy, there can't be that, as you put it, missing second domino. So in this debate, for this particular argument, I do think that there might be a bit of credibility, not not to the extremes that many people would want to claim, but there might be a bit of credibility that once we do open the floodgates and allow for certain types of regulation, that certainly it would be easier to regulate in the future. Does that really bear out in history, though? There was the, how long was it, the assault weapons ban? But then that sunsetted and people were able to buy assault weapons again. Mm -hmm. Clearly, once we initially regulate, we're not necessarily going to always regulate. I think that the uh, the NRA, though, has definitely done a good job of making any regulation impossible to enact in a, in a majority of states. And they definitely see themselves as holding back those floodgates that I mentioned. And, and if somebody somewhere manages to push through some legislation, then certainly there would be more legislation to follow. Uh, I think where this becomes a slippery slope is when they try to say that the legislation which would follow would not be more reasonable legislation, but would carry through all the way, like you you said, where you know nobody's allowed to have a, a BB gun and shoot squirrels on their property. Have you ever fired a gun? I have. Yeah. Not at squirrels. <laughs> I have a past. We used to sit on my friend's back porch and fire a BB gun at raccoons. Isn't that awful? Yeah, yeah, you're a you're a bad person. They were trying to eat their cat's food because they had their cats outside, mm. and the raccoons were coming for the cat food. So we were really defending the fort. I mean, if you think about it, there you go, self defense. Obvious. Mm-hmm. What side of this topic you're on? And clearly, clearly, I'm against any form of gun control whatsoever. Realistically, here the these are 
some of the interpretations of what policy is and misinterpretations of what policy is in the status quo conversation, a real debate or a productive debate would more be along the lines of questioning where on this spectrum of complete freedom to own anything you want and complete regulation where you can't own a single weapon, where exactly is the appropriate place for policy to lie? And that's not really a discussion that we're hearing. While it's fun to look at the really extreme hyperbolic arguments around this issue, that's not really actually where a lot of the policy discussion is happening, where the most probable outcomes are actually going to come from when we're looking at what could potentially change or be perpetuated with the way that guns are legislated currently. The more reasoned argument is the more interesting argument because it has the more bearing on how people actually live their lives. People are not proposing all of these fallacious arguments when we're looking at actual legislation around gun control or the reasons to not regulate guns. We're looking at things that are a little less out there. Mm -hmm. And one of our goals for our adjudication episodes is to help our listeners identify when these logical fallacies or errors and argumentation show up, not just in this debate, but debates in general. So it's important to avoid the slippery slope argumentation. It's important to avoid this straw man argumentation. And when there is a policy on the table, debate that actual policy, not some caricaturized version of it. Despite the extreme arguments that we're talking about, and even the more reasonable ones, it seems probably to some folks kind of surprising that we're actually discussing this issue at all, because it is a constitutional amendment that guarantees this right to a lot of people. So why would we even be discussing whether or not the right should be restricted or broadened for people? And this is where we come into some of the current events that drive the discussion further, because we have school shootings, we have people who have experienced gun violence, and, um, you know, access to guns hurts a lot of children, a lot of families and things like that. Despite the fact that this is a right in the constitution, it is obviously something that has kind of morphed over the past couple hundred years into something maybe quite different than what people initially thought it would look like. Mm -hmm. And that I think is one of the reasons that this is such a difficult discussion to settle is because we have the historical context of the constitution from which our laws and legislation is derived, sort of butting heads with the seeming reality of the world that we live in now that would suggest that perhaps this is one area where the Constitution got it wrong, even though that statement is pretty sacrilegious to some people. The Constitution is never wrong. It's the most perfect document ever created. That's why it's been amended like 27 times. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Let's, let's, why don't we start there? Why do we have these policies being put forth in the first place? Because potentially... Um, one of those amendments that you mentioned, the Second Amendment, might have gotten it wrong or might not be as timeless as some people would think. I think we can blame this on a couple of things. One, they used to write like old-timey people in the old-timey times. So the language itself is up to a lot of debate when people look at it currently. But also the kinds of weapons that were available at the time are different than what they are now. And so these things definitely give it a different context in terms of what was historically the case when it was written and what mm -hmm. things look like currently. Yeah, I don't think that anybody saying citizens should have a right 
to bear arms, and that's not actually what it says, which we'll talk about later, but somebody having the right to bear arms had automatic weapons in mind when they wrote it, or even even the imagination to conceptualize that that could be something that exists. And this brings us to another logical fallacy, which this is a difficult one because a lot of people aren't going to like this. The, a, a majority of our laws are based on this logical fallacy, which is the appeal to authority or the appeal to tradition. Because the Constitution says so, therefore, this has to be the law. And while that's been accepted as the foundation for law in our country, it is a logical fallacy. There are a lot of different ways that people can interpret the Constitution, and there are people who look at it a lot more literally than others do. And this is, I think, a big area where this amendment in particular gets analyzed and relitigated constantly, is trying to figure out what the actual intent of the framers were, and then how that applies considering our modern context. But ultimately, there is a myth, especially in the United States, that 250 years ago, a bunch of white men had it figured out and they were the ultimate authority on what rights were sacrosanct for all of eternity. Mm -hmm. And so that, again, that appeal to authority is problematic in and of itself. I think that the reason that we still use the constitution is to be fair to these guys. They did get a lot of stuff right. Um, there, there is a lot of value in the document, but when a good idea becomes a logical fallacy is when we just take it at face value and are unwilling to analyze it or question it in any circumstances whatsoever. And I think a lot of people are suggesting that the second amendment is one of those circumstances. While we can say that it's probably fallacious to look at George Washington and Ben Franklin as being the end all be all of what the discussion about gun rights should be. That's looking at things in a very extreme lens. And we can also appreciate that the historical context does have a bearing on how we structure society now. And having these people make these laws in the first place does not mean that the laws themselves should be thrown out by any means. It, it, it's a good basis for the government of the United States, even if it was two centuries plus ago. Mm -hmm. And I think similar to the fallacy of the slippery slope, there's a very fine line between it being a logical fallacy that breaks down or a legitimate argument. In the case of the slippery slope, is there that domino missing or that bright line that stops something from sliding beyond the point where we want it to? And in the case of the appeal to authority or the appeal to tradition, on the flip side of this one, there is an argument that would suggest that consistency is a positive thing. We can't just be changing our laws whenever we feel like it, you know, year to year or administration to administration. There has to be some continuity in our legislative process. And so rooting our laws in the Constitution could be argued as an appeal to tradition or could be argued as seeing benefits in the type of consistency that that provides. When adjudicating the issue of the actual constitutional basis for the right to bear arms, the more persuasive way that the argument would go would be for people who reject the Constitution to at least acknowledge perhaps that there was some merit to some aspects of it and make a concession that it was acceptable in some places to maybe have a law of the land like the Constitution. And then on the other side of it, for people who definitely think that the Constitution is 
the ultimate basis for all legislation and all ways that we live our lives as Americans would be to acknowledge that there were some aspects of it that did require some correction, that it was not a perfect document. And in those middle ground discussions, people look a lot more credible when they're arguing about the issue at hand. Yeah. And those are just more interesting and productive discussions. I I think that one area where people have identified the constitution might be lacking is when it comes to technology or like there's certain fundamental rights that are written into it that are pretty basic and pretty universal. But when it comes to what guns looked like 200 years ago versus what guns look like now, maybe it's just impossible to write law that's going to hold up over time. Or this is an entirely different debate, but there's a lot of people who say that there's need for amendments that perhaps include individuals' cyber rights with the advent of the internet and technology advancing in that forum and the way that we interact with it as people, perhaps there should be guaranteed rights that that we deserve, guaranteed protections that we need that obviously 200 years ago weren't going to be included in this document. That's a criticism of any legal system, of any law that tries to keep up with the accelerated pace at which society is changing and the way that technology is evolving. Law is always lagging. So it's not just the constitution, mm-hmm. but it is the most pertinent. <laughs> it's the most pertinent legal document when we're talking about gun control, at least in an American context. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So again, uh, more fallacies to avoid, appeals to authority, appeals to tradition. Not that it's impossible to argue authority and tradition legitimately. But oftentimes in this particular debate, it's not done well. Another aspect of looking at the difference between history and the way that things operate on the ground currently would be to analyze the different effects that guns have on society right now outside of whatever context they live in in the Constitution itself. This means looking at the reality of things like school shootings, which we've already mentioned, and other issues such as gun crime and accidental children getting a hold of a gun and making horrible things happen, the things that are the realities of having guns in society and do raise the questions about whether or not we need to change our approach to having the guns in society. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly where the modern context clashes with the historical context. And so with the framing we've covered in mind of this is what reasonable regulation discussions look like and this is how the Constitution comes into conflict with modern events. I think that the rest of the arguments for this episode broadly fall under the umbrella of a discussion of individual rights versus a discussion of public safety. So for the remainder of the episode, we'll be talking about various arguments that either forward or challenge these basic positions. I think starting with the argumentation that falls under the basic auspices of protection, whether that's self-defense or public safety. To begin that discussion, there are statistical metrics that can be employed to analyze what happens in a place that has guns versus what happens in a place that doesn't have guns. And no matter how you look at it, it's fact on the ground that countries with um, more restrictive gun control laws have lower gun homicide and suicide rates than in the United States. And this is one of the arguments that maybe one of the pet arguments that the pro-gun regulation side makes. How does this argument hold up, though? It's, it's difficult to compare other countries and their crime rates with the United States. And 
when you're going to use an example in order to prove your point, the first thing that you have to do is show that the example you're pointing to is analogous to the situation where the actual debate is happening. It is interesting to compare how gun crime looks in the United States versus other countries and think that that is the end of the discussion. That's the only fact that matters. But many of the details are lost when you look at it that simplistically. There are many different things that feed into a culture that accepts guns into it and then uses guns in the way that the United States uses guns. There's Mm -hmm. a lot different you know, poverty rates here than in a lot of other countries that are less violent. There's just a different cultural context compared to a lot of European countries. The United States has a much more individualistic culture. Other countries have a more collectivistic culture. There's so many other things that could be the reason that there are higher homicide rates here than just the fact that there are guns here. Mm -hmm. The example is always, well, in England, the police don't even use guns. So therefore, we can completely dismantle the Second Amendment. Some police have guns in England. That's true. And so if as opposed to looking for arguments or looking for examples that are less analogous, I think it's useful to always trying to find the most pertinent statistics possible, especially in this case where the statistics are pretty easily accessible comparing different states within the United States, their levels of restriction when it comes to their gun policy and the level of violence that can be attached to that. It's fun to compare the United States to England for a variety of reasons, but actually comparing a lot of the states in the United States to one another is a much more effective metric for how Americans act when it comes to these gun control issues. Looking, for instance, at California, which has the most restrictive gun laws, has the second most number of deaths in 2019 after Texas. Mm-hmm. And this is this is something that the pro-Second Amendment side likes to point to. They say, well, California has the most restrictive gun laws in the state. Why are the deaths so high? Um, if you want another, I suppose this is an illogical fallacy, but a very common mistake that people make in argumentation, that would be skewing statistics or cherry picking statistics to benefit their side. And I think this is definitely a case of that. One thing that it might be left out of the conversation when looking at how California has that high of a number of gun deaths is perhaps how big California is. There -hmm. are more people in California. So it kind of make more sense, statistically speaking, just a higher number altogether of people in California would experience gun violence than say like Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so actually California has the seventh lowest death rate when you take the population into consideration. For people making these arguments, if you want to be credible, and then for people listening and adjudicating the arguments, if you want to decide what is credible, it's definitely important to pick statistics that take into consideration as many factors involved as possible. Exactly. I think it's more credible to have the more moderate yet more provable statistics on your side of an argument. And even if they're not as sensational as the cherry-picked statistics are, they can still win your side in the argument. They just might not do it with such gusto. And it makes the people presenting those arguments look a lot more credible when they're willing to acknowledge that adjusted for other factors, this is actually the statistic that's at the core of this debate, which is still persuasive. It's just not like Fox News persuasive. Mm-hmm. 
along the same argument, the other fact that's brought up is the 10 highest death rates, taking population into consideration, are the states with the most lenient gun control. So this would be Alaska, Mississippi, Wyoming, Alabama, Louisiana, Missouri, South Carolina, Arkansas, and Montana. I understand that's nine. The 10th one on the list is New Mexico, which actually does not fall into the category of most lenient gun control, but does make the top 10 highest death rates. So nine out of 10, pretty compelling evidence. Pretty compelling without being quite as sensational as some of the other ways that data is presented. Mm -hmm. And so something like this, I think that people need to understand that sometimes in a debate, there will be arguments or pieces of evidence that fall very clearly in the favor of one side. And to be perfectly honest, when it comes to death rates versus how restrictive a state's gun laws are, it falls pretty squarely on the side of we do need some sort of legislation that restricts access to guns. That being said, just strategically, if you are pro-Second Amendment, just because you lose that argument or you lose those statistics doesn't mean that you've lost the debate. But lying about the statistics to try and win doesn't going to help you gain credibility or gain ground. I think like what we said earlier about how there are different cultural aspects that may explain these statistics as well. There are ways that we could talk about the specific culture in these areas where there are higher amounts of gun deaths and think about what are the other ways in which we can answer for that that isn't necessarily gun control legislation and see if there's an effective way to address some of the other issues. Like, is it an issue of like higher rates of domestic violence? Is it because there are more people living in poverty? Things that are not necessarily at all to do with guns themselves, but more to do with social policy. So even with these statistics, it paints a picture that seems pretty obvious that it's about gun control, but it might not be the core of the issue about what motivates people to actually use a gun in this way. And what's important to note there is that approach to these statistics is let's rebut the statistics by including more factors, by looking at a more complete picture, rather than saying, well, California has the most restrictive gun laws and the second most deaths in 2019 without considering population. That strategy is doing exactly the opposite, making it less persuasive and less effective. The other thing you can do here. And this is one thing that the pro-Second Amendment crowd does well, is question, okay, even if these are the statistics and even if they hold water, what is the relationship between statistics and individual rights? Just because a high number of people are doing something wrong doesn't mean that I deserve to lose my right when I do this thing correctly. So Instead of trying to lie and throw out statistics or manipulate statistics, take the statistics, accept them, and say, that still doesn't prove your core point, which is that my rights need to be restricted. Yeah, a lot of people on that side of the debate point to the individual responsibility and individual rights of the people who have firearms in the first place. Well, I'm a responsible gun owner. I don't keep my guns just out all over the place and let my kids have access to them. I've taken a gun safety course. I have the appropriate permits. I don't need to be legislated into restriction, even if other people are irresponsible. You can't apply such a blanket policy when some people are doing things incorrectly, but I'm here innocently doing nothing wrong. 
Mm-hmm. And this is where probably the most famous saying on this topic comes into play. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. And the incompetence or malice of some people that lead to these gun-related tragedies doesn't really apply to me if I'm taking the appropriate precautions and using my firearms for what they were meant to be used for, self-defense in this case, or fighting off an army of squirrels. It kind of reminds me of how in elementary school, the whole class would be put into you're not going to get the pizza party if there's one more person who steps out of line and then the one person steps out of line and there's no pizza party and then Mm -hmm. 29 innocent people don't get pizza. I think that that (laughs) is a really oversimplified way of looking at this argument, but essentially all of these other folks are the ones who are making bad decisions with, with weapons and I'm not. So I would be a victim of over-legislation for no fault of my own if this type of policy moves forward based on what other people are doing. And that's a perfectly fair argument. We don't we don't define our individual rights or individual liberties under the Constitution based on probabilities and statistics. These things are considered, for the most part, inalienable. Despite all that, statistics are still used to form a lot of public policy. And even if not everybody is the same under these statistical measures, There is a point in which it becomes overwhelmingly obvious that there is something going on that needs to be changed. And at that point, we have to ask, when do these statistics reach actionable levels? Mm -hmm. That would be something like, I'm thinking drunk driving, where not everybody that drives drunk is going to hurt themselves or somebody else. But we've decided that the chances of you hurting somebody else are high enough. We have the statistics to back it up that this is something we're going to criminalize. Interestingly, too, because drunk driving is one of the very few off the top of my head. I can't think of another action where you haven't done anything wrong, but you get to be punished for it, right? You've done something that gives you the potential to do something wrong, and that's why you're being punished. You don't consider the actual driving drunk as inherently wrong. No, because if you, you know, it is it is possible and there are people out there every day who drive drunk, don't hit anything, don't break any traffic laws, get home safely. The inherent act of driving while intoxicated doesn't harm anybody. It severely increases the chances of somebody being harmed. And that's why we criminalize it. But I can't think of another action like that where you can get punished for the potential to create harm. I think that there are examples of that. There are a lot of cases of like single mothers who go on job interviews and they have their kids in the car and their kids are fine. They're, they're mm. totally fine. But the fact that they were left alone and nothing happened to those children, but the potential was that they could have had something to them can hurt them. So I, I think that there are other laws that do operate that way mm. where the initial acts of negligence or irresponsibility is enough of a, of a potential for harm that it constitutes the violation itself. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I, I take your point. Like there are plenty of times that people get behind the wheel and they make it home. Where I think that this discussion should be had in the gun control debate is we don't hear anybody out there asking, what are the odds that an individual who has XYZ firearm and has done XYZ training what are the odds that that scenario is going to lead to somebody's harm? And based on that, how do we construct policy? 
See, to me, that that's the nuanced type of discussion that we should be having rather than, well, guns don't kill people, people kill people. And, oh my God, if you have a gun in your house, for sure your family's going to die. Once again, being a little more nuanced with the argument as a whole, being able to look at mitigating factors, being able to avoid the extreme rhetoric tends to make the arguments coming on either side be more acceptable to people than the extreme hyperbolic rhetoric. People like these extreme arguments because they're they're punchy, they're catchy, they they grab attention, but ultimately they are losing a lot of credibility overall because they're overused and they don't take into account some of the things like the nuance we've been discussing. Mm, and I think that's a common theme through not just this debate but probably any debate is it's so much easier to reduce a topic down to black and white, take it to the extremes, and then deal with those arguments than it is to kind of wade through the gray area in the middle. The problem is the gray area in the middle is probably where the solution is going to be found. It's just difficult and dirty, and people don't want to do that. They want to run to their camp, stake their flag, and just be done with it. That's a more fun way to argue about anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's true. So, Moving on to the other half of this protection collection of arguments, we've discussed gun deaths and trying to reduce gun violence. For the pro-Second Amendment crowd, their argument to this would be, well, you're trying to keep yourself safe. We're trying to keep ourselves safe. And our right to guns is a method through which we can reach our right to self-defense, which very hard to argue is something that people could be denied. It's hard to argue against it if you have reasonable data proving that that's how people are utilizing their right to bear arms. This is where another type of erroneous argumentation happens, and that's grouping everybody together as one homogenous entity. And this is why I think firearms regulation happens on a state-by-state basis, and why we talked about earlier pointing to international examples and their gun regulation or not and levels of violence or not, is not super useful because how gun ownership plays out varies pretty extremely depending on the cultural contexts of any individual community. Exactly. There are plenty of people who have their handed down generation through generation single handgun that was probably made in like 1920 or something. I don't know. And then there's the like Lauren Boebert everybody in the family gets an AK. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's so many different ways to be a gun owner and so many different ways to consider how you're defending yourself with your right to bear arms. Some people keep a very easy to access gun in their nightstand, like as a just in case measure. And then some people are ready to like shoot anybody on site that like walks on their lawn. Like there's so many different psychologies involved when it comes to what self-defense actually means and how guns interact with that notion of self-defense. Mm-hmm. And there's individuals who who definitely see guns as a weapon. And then there's individuals, I, I was born in Montana and in Montana, a gun is just a tool. It has a use. Everybody knows what the use is. Everybody learns how to use it. And despite it being on that top 10 list, it's thought of very differently than maybe in a place like California for those individuals that do have guns. Was it used to like hammer nails and walls or <laughs> how, how are how is it conceptualized as a tool for people who don't have that kind of exposure to it in a different cultural context? 
Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, it's just it's something useful to, to have when you're living in a more rural environment. Most of the time when it comes to animals, whether it's hunting or livestock that you might have to deal with, uh, unfortunately, sometimes. On the other side of things, it is protection. It is self-defense in areas where you don't want to have to rely on the police. The closest police station is an hour away. You want to have the ability to defend yourself and not hopefully call and somebody hopefully pick up and they'll get there when they can. And if it's too late, sorry. That leads into a different part of the discussion that we haven't really touched on yet, which is the role of police as it pertains to defense of of people and whether or not people want to wait for the police or even utilize the police at all to defend themselves. A lot of people think that it's an individual right and an individual responsibility to defend themselves and not want to utilize those services or rely upon the government to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting here, I think, because there's a surprising overlap between the conservatives that are typically pro-firearm and liberals who, especially in the recent years, have been very vocal about pointing out the flaws with our police systems. Yeah, that is still quite different when it comes to how it's supposed to operate, because I think the liberal side of that argument does not want guns to enter the conversation at all. The police shouldn't have them and utilize them because a lot of people end up dying as a result of that. And then individuals themselves shouldn't have them because people end up dying as a result of that. And on the other side of that, when it comes to the more conservative side of the argument, they don't trust that the government is useful, essentially, and in a measure of self-defense or public defense. And so it's better to take that matter into your own hands. But either way, guns are definitely still a factor. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to one of the other most common arguments on this issue, which is that gun control laws don't prevent criminals from obtaining guns or breaking laws. So if you criminalize my ownership and you take my gun away and I'm a law-abiding citizen, I'll give it to you. But the person who's coming to rob me will not. And now they know I don't have a gun. But I think what's also important to note here is, again, this goes back to the first fallacy that we talked about when we were discussing what does regulation look like. And there are very few proposals on the table that suggest nobody should be able to own any type of firearm, right? So if you play out the same scenario in a situation where if you have passed a background check and been properly trained, you are allowed to own a defensive-oriented gun, you can still protect yourself even if you've lost the right to own an AK-47. This also might be an area where it's actually useful to compare other countries as well, even though we found some flaws with doing that earlier. But in places like the United Kingdom, where there are not as many guns, people you know have like hunting rifles here and there when they live out in the country. But for the most part, people don't have handguns the way that they do in the United States. Crime is actually perpetual perpetuated more with knives than it is with guns. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of debunks the idea that criminals are going to have guns and will just be defenseless. No, they're going to have switchblades, which are still bad, but they're far less capable of killing a lot of people at once. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's interesting to kind of look at how these different types of legislation bear out in other countries. And even if we don't get to the extreme of completely taking away guns from people in the United States, the idea that they're going to have an Uzi and rob my home. And all I've got is like a little six shooter is kind of laughably exaggerating the actual 
dynamic of what it's going to look like if there's more gun regulation. Yeah, I definitely think it's overly simplistic. Like it's certainly harder to get guns when they are illegal. And the other thing that's happening here is that there's federal regulation that could potentially be put into place versus state by state regulation. So if in one state it is still legal to purchase a firearm, of course, somebody can purchase it in Mississippi and then walk it. I understand this is impossible, but and then walk it to California and then commit crimes in California or ex neighboring state that has restrictive gun laws. There is the potential for that to happen if this is mandated on a state by state level, less likely to happen if this is something that's mandated on a federal level. And those are the sort of distinctions that I think need to be made if people are trying to forward these arguments. Finally, when looking at the Second Amendment, a a discussion that doesn't happen a lot when we're talking about the right to bear arms, but needs to as it's a part of the actual wording of the amendment is the topic of having a well-regulated militia, which probably a lot of us don't really think about there being a need for a militia or know a local militia member, but it's definitely a relevant thing when we're looking at some of the current events in the Western United States in particular. I don't know if there was one of us who might have in our New Year's episode included the assault on the Capitol building as one of their top five. But if there was, that person might also be alluding to this debate here, which is there are some people who might think that the need for a militia is more relevant now than it used to be. And this is for sure in those in those circles, this is an argument that comes up a lot. Um, if we ever have to fight back against the government, we need the tools to do it. I think this is one of the more ridiculous arguments on this topic, but it is certainly an argument that is made pretty consistently. It's almost hard to kind of seriously talk about the militia aspect of it because it seems so old fashioned and just something that isn't like we don't deal with this. And for a second there, I thought you were going to say that the January 6th rioters were a militia. Is that what you're arguing? I I think they would. I think they see themselves as a militia. Hmm. And I think that they could argue were they better armed, they might have been able to protect the democracy that has been attacked by whoever, the Illuminati. I'm not sure who they think is attacking it, but I think that that's how they see themselves. And I think that they see the Second Amendment as the thing that's ensuring that they can take this action when necessary. Now, what they're going to do with even an AK-47 against a tank or a fighter jet, I'm not really sure. Um, And this is where this argument falls down, the idea that an individual with individual firearms could stand up against the government were the government to want to subject them to tyranny, a little bit laughable, but that's the argument that's out there. There are people who think of themselves as militia members or as a collective militia in a lot of cases, whether or not they would meet the definition, who have done some pretty demonstrably weird things, bad things. I'm thinking about the Malheur um, bird sanctuary or whatever that's in Eastern Oregon that was taken over by the Bundys a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. They were seizing it because it was a federal uh, outpost that was occupying their livestock grazing area, I think was the actual crux of the debate. And they scared all these poor like bird enthusiast federal employees out of there. And they were there for a couple months, I think. 
And they were claiming that they were operating under the auspices of what they were allowed to do based on the constitution. I think another example that relates to this is the Branch Davidians in the famous Waco, Texas standoff, who who saw their right to bear arms as a necessary right to protect themselves against tyranny of a government that they wanted to stand against. Again, didn't end super well for them, but does that matter when it comes to whether or not they deserve the right, the practical outcome of it? Not sure. We'd probably have to look at what that right actually means when looking at how the amendment itself is phrased and what that might be interpreted as. So the actual wording is a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep in their arms shall not be infringed. And I think what's important there is, let me reread it really quickly, a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. And the reason I'm being pedantic here and including the commas is because this has turned into quite the debate of whether grammatically this means that the Second Amendment applies to individuals or militias as groups. Um, It's literally known as the individual right theory versus the collective rights theory. Right. Were the founding fathers exclusively considering citizens armed as militia members as being the intended outcome of the Second Amendment? Or a militia is a distinct thing. And then people owning guns at home is a distinct thing. And they both should be able to exist and have the weapons that they choose. Mm -hmm. And this is an interesting legal debate that's going on, uh, again, rooted in the idea that the decision that we need to make here needs to be consistent with the intent of the framers of the Constitution. Like, if we don't really care what they intended on this issue because it's evolved in the 200 years since they've been gone, we don't have to have this debate. It would be kind of interesting if we ultimately settle on, no, the founding fathers definitely meant it was just about militias. So your individual right to own a gun, we have a militia member and that's the way that you get to actually keep it. But otherwise, that's not really what we're talking about here. When I think that in all probability, if we're adjusting for a modern context, even if that's what the founding fathers had intended, most folks probably would say that the opposite is how it should be applied currently. I think people have a higher value in the individual liberty of owning a firearm than in the ability to become a a militia member. You know, we've listed several logical fallacies. We've listed several ways in which statistics or argumentation can be implemented fallaciously. I think it's important to note that while it's not considered a logical fallacy, understanding the motivations of people is important because like literally by definition, we are never going to be able to come to a consensus on who exactly the founding fathers intended to be referring to in that phrase. There's just no way. They're all gone. The grammar is not something that has an objective answer. We cannot decide that debate. And so my point is that the decision that people come to is going to be based on just the motivations that they have, right? They have the answer that they want to be true. And then based on the answer that they want to be true, they're going to reverse engineer their arguments for it. 
And I think that's important to realize is because most of these fallacies and, and most of these issues with argumentation stem from people trying to force arguments to prove a certain side rather than having a good faith approach to an issue and trying to find the legitimately correct answer for that issue. With all of that, how much does the issue of militias in and of itself actually affect the gun control debate? I, I, I don't think much. I think it reinforces the idea of the constitutionality or lack thereof for this issue. And then they can then, whoever, whichever side can weaponize that argument to forward their side a bit. My point is more just that if you're trying to make up your own mind on this or any topic, especially ones that have become so polarized, just try to check yourself that you're not simply taking a position that you might already have had or been indoctrinated is a strong word, influenced is a less strong word, but either way that you've been guided towards. Well, that's good advice for any debater, right? Is to take themselves out of the context that they understood growing up and the the culture they were raised in and look at things from a perspective that they may not have gotten used to. And I think that makes for a more comprehensive debater altogether. It can help you reinforce what you believe to better understand the things that others believe that come in conflict with what you believe. Mm -hmm. And not just for our listeners or or people trying to decide these debates personally, but it would be really nice if some of our legislators did the same thing as opposed to I'm a Democrat. Therefore I need to push the strictest gun control possible. Therefore I need these arguments to be proven in a certain way. I need the founders to have been referring to collective rights and not individual rights. I need the statistics to support my cause. They, they've come to the conclusion before they've gone through the process. And I, I guess as a voter, recognizing when that's happening, um, both in terms of politicians, media, and then in your own mind is super useful. It's a nice little button on the whole idea of how to be a better debater And then ultimately, maybe a better legislator, too. So this is what the gun control debate should look like. We've kind of covered the common arguments, where they fall flat, where they stand up, how they could be fixed, if you will. A little bit of a different type of episode, as we said at the beginning. If you liked the episode, uh, you could let us know, as always, on Twitter, on Facebook, at IndubitablyPod. You could let us know by emailing us at indubitablypodcast at gmail.com. If it is something that people are interested in or, or an episode you enjoyed, there's definitely plenty of similar topics that we could craft adjudication episodes on. Things like the war on drugs, abortion legislation, socialized healthcare, etc. If you have any other topics that you keep hearing about in the news and they don't seem to be going anywhere, let us take them somewhere and look at them through a different lens than maybe you're used to. We, we certainly enjoy doing that. We like telling other people why they're wrong. Yeah, that's basically how it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, as usual, thank you for listening. And until next time, take care. Bye-bye.